Hi, welcome to the Aaron Fox Schiff Los Angeles Office Corporate Corner Podcast, hosted by myself, Bill D'Angelo, LA Office Corporate Partner, on my colleague Scott Adamson, also a Los Angeles Office Corporate Partner. And our guest today is Adam Diederich, our, corp- our partner from the Chicago office, who is a litigator. Uh, welcome, Adam. How are you today? Thanks, Bill. It's uh, great to be here. I'm doing well. Fantastic. So, um, Adam, why don't you tell us uh, what the topic of our conversation is for today? What are we What are we talking about? I'm here to talk with you about a significant piece of federal legislation that's going to come into effect uh, beginning in 2024 called the Corporate Transparency Act. And so I know I, I was on another podcast with you where we talked about the uh, CTA. Um, can you provide some background to how, you know, what this act is, you know, at a high level? And then if, if you have the knowledge, you know, how we how it came about, what was the impetus behind the corporate trans? First of all, what is the Corporate Transparency Act? And then secondly, what what is behind this law? Why 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 this law and why now? Sure. So at a really high level, the Corporate Transparency Act requires many private companies, uh, especially closely held businesses, businesses with with few owners, uh, including LLCs and partnerships, to report information about their so-called beneficial owners. The report information gets reported to the U.S. Treasury Department. Uh, It has a division called Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN. And the, the purpose of this is to prevent businesses and other entities from uh, being used for illegal or illicit activities. Think money laundering, tax fraud, terrorism financing. This disclosure of information is, is to the federal government is meant to uh, prevent and, and, and then help uh, remedy some of those illicit actions. What is, what is the, um, the uh, AML and other you know, money laundering what what other laws currently exist at the federal level? I mean, it seems to me—I don't know about you, Scott—but this seems like a huge law to implement. And I'm just curious: how does this interact with the other AML um, requirements that we see in, in in the economy? So this builds on to other uh, anti-money laundering laws. In in many respects, the the U.S. is behind uh, other comparable countries with 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 respect to these types of disclosure requirements. Uh, so it's it's made in in some commentators' eyes the U.S. Uh, a place where it's too easy for businesses to be used for these for these types of illegal activities. I, I think it might be helpful to uh, to set the stage by just explaining how the current um, regime works. I mean, are, are there any, is it possible to have a corporation that you don't have to disclose ownership of in the United States? So it, there's a difference between a, a corporation and, and other types of entities. The, the the biggest concern is not not with corporations, C-corps or S-corps, but with respect to uh, limited liability companies and, and, and partnerships. In, in particular, limited liability companies or LLCs uh, can be formed and nobody uh, from a public facing perspective has any idea who the owners are of the LLCs uh, with, without the owners disclosing themselves in some way. Well, how is that different from a corporation? A corporation operates the same way, I believe. If, if you're talking about shareholders, that, that that's yeah. that's correct as, as well, except when it comes to 
the the Corporate Transparency Act, the the federal government, uh, Congress ha- has recognized that for for corporations that often tend to be bigger and to have uh, more revenue, or especially publicly traded uh, corporations, right. if they're already disclosing this type of information, um, either to the to the IRS and tax returns or to other regulatory bodies, they're exempt from the requirements of the CTA. And we'll get into those exemptions a little bit later on. So Adam, I, one of the things I was looking at before we did this podcast was, I, can't, I wish I could find the source of the article for us to link to it. I'll have to dig through after the podcast. But it was my understanding that, I think it was either the Wall Street Journal or Financial Times did an article on um, tax havens and said that the largest uh, tax haven jurisdiction in the world is the United States, which was really shocking to me. Um, is Does that weigh in on, on why Congress um, passed this law, is, is to address that issue? You, you, are, you are exactly correct, with one of the purposes being uh, tax fraud or uh, avoiding the payment uh, of taxes. The ability uh, of people in the U.S. to form an LLC without disclosing who actually controls and owns the LLC is one of the primary driving forces uh, behind this act. So is there right now, is there a, um, uh, an analogous law in the EU jurisdiction for this at a sort of high level? Are we catching up to Europe on this? My understanding generally is that we are catching up to Europe on this. I'm, I'm not familiar with the, with the specifics of that myself, though. Right. Even the Swiss, as, as I understand it, are uh, you know, allowing at least the disclosure of their customer accounts and things under certain limited circumstances. So I think that's this right. is definitely a worldwide trend. Many critics, though, of uh, of the U.S. At, U.S. Act have have pointed out that, based on the experience of countries in, in Europe, the the act seems to be putting a lot of burden on certain businesses w- without a lot of business, without a lot of um, without without a lot of upside. Uh, in, in particular, uh, some financial institutions in the U.S. recently pointed out that. There's there's so much burden involved on businesses. The information may not be that available to financial institutions in many circumstances. And financial mm. institutions are one of the types of entities alongside certain types of law enforcement entities who can get access to the information that's disclosed under this act. Uh, the, these critics pointed out that it's going to take a lot of time and money to comply with the act. The mm-hmm. information probably won't be readily available to them, at least from their view. And without some type of verification system, to ensure that the information being provided by these companies, these reporting companies that have to provide this information, is actually accurate, uh, it, it's it's not going to be that effective. And I believe what what certain European countries have found is that verification is is crucial. It's also really expensive, and that that is not built into the act at, at this point. Uh, verification mm-hmm. efforts. I see. So you said that this information will be uh, warehoused. By uh, in a FinCEN database, what does FinCEN do um, currently, and how does this change their mandate? So this is it's consistent with FinCEN's mandate to to deal with uh, financial crimes. That's what FinCEN primarily does. So it, it was it was one of the the logical potential federal agencies to deal with this. But th- this is a huge expansion in terms of its responsibilities. Just building the database and maintaining it from a data security and private privacy perspective is, is going to be a huge undertaking. And uh, I'm I'm already reading uh, critics uh, pointing out that the database. Um, probably won't be ready for a while. And that, in fact, 
when the reporting obligation kicks in for certain companies in January of 2024, those reports may have to be submitted in paper, not Are electronic, you because it not it might not be ready. That's crazy. I mean, because you're talking about probably tens of thousands of entities, is my guess. Oh, it's a, it's it's a lot more than that. FinCEN estimates that there are 30 million or more so-called reporting companies. And we'll get into that definition later, but this applies to reporting companies. This, this act could apply to 30 million or more companies that are in existence as of today. I don't see how that can be administrated in a paper filing. I mean, it's, it's almost like saying the government won't have this information at their fingertips if, if there's millions and millions of entities. I mean, I don't know what you think, Scott, because we, we've talked about this from a compliance standpoint, um, those numbers are staggering. I, I just, I think that, that that's, this is going to be very hard for this to get launched off the ground. I will say from a deadline perspective, if the 30 million uh, reporting companies figure is accurate, th- those are companies that exist today. Companies that exist today don't actually have to report this information until January of 2025. Right. In January of 2024, the obligation to report this information begins for newly formed domestic companies or newly registered foreign companies that register to do business in the US. And the estimate there is it's less. It's it's a I think it's 3 to 5 million companies are estimated to uh, be formed and to ha- have to report this information uh, per year. And and of course once the information is reported there, there's an obligation to update it if certain material aspects change, but there are there is no regular reporting requirement if the information doesn't change. So maybe that's a good point for us to dive into what what is what are the um, the relevant entities and what are the requirements with respect to those entities or persons um, under this FinCEN uh, CTA rule. What what who are the parties and what are their responsibilities? Um, and then maybe a collateral question, because Scott and I have talked about this, would be where where do law firms fit within the compliance scheme? So maybe we talk about first the summary of requirements, and then as a collateral question, you know, where do we as lawyers fit into this uh, schematic? Let's let's start from from the beginning at the at the highest possible level, and, and really there are three key terms to understand. Uh, to have an understanding of the Corporate Transparency Act. They are reporting company, company applicant, and beneficial owner. So mm. at, the, at the highest possible level, the act requires that a reporting company disclose certain information about the entity itself, about the company itself, and it also has to disclose information about the company applicant and about the company's beneficial owners. That information, as, as I mentioned earlier, has to be disclosed to FinCEN. So, so let me ask you a question. I, I, think, I think of this, stand- Scott and I go through this all the time. We form an LLC. The, um, the formation person might be a paralegal or a lawyer at our firm, or it might be uh, the, the managing member or um, a manager. But uh, let's just take the case of the LLC. Who's, what's the reporting company? Who's the company applicant and who are the beneficial owners? Because I think that the the most likely scenario is how this applies to our LLC clients. I, I agree. So 
company applicant. Company applicant uh, is, is typically going to be the person who fills out and files the documents with, uh, typically it's going to be a, a state government agency or entity. Think the Secretary of State's office, uh, the Delaware Secretary of State. Whoever does that is deemed the company applicant. According to Got the it. act, there can be up to two company applicants. So it's possible that the company applicant be a person who works for the LLC. Perhaps it's uh, one of the, the managers or, or members of the LLC. And it could also be a lawyer or paralegal who then does the physical act of filing the document that creates the LLC with the government agency. Got there's, it. A, there's a reprieve, though, for currently existing companies. Company applicant information does not have to be reported for companies that already exist. So if a company exists uh, by the end of 2023, then company applicant information is not going to need to be reported. Whereas if a company exists only after the end of this year, so beginning January 1st, 2024, it's newly formed, then the company applicant information is going to have to be disclosed. Got so it. with respect to law firms, uh, there, there's, a, there's a question as to when and whether law firms will be company applicants when they are involved in the process of creating these entities. So, Adam, what is your take on is this is the way I analogize this? I mean, Scott and I have talked about this offline and Scott, if you want to jump in, please do. What this feels like to me, although it's not exactly the same, is Y2K. Like I remember, I mean, I distinctly remember it was early in my career, um, 1999. Uh, I was at Latham and Watkins at the time as a junior associate. Um, and I remember the frenzy behind um, compliance with Y2K because we, everyone thought all these computers were going to shut off at, at, at midnight of December 31st, 1999. Of course, none of that happened, <laughs> but it was a, it was a pretty big... Uh, boon to law firms to have to do Y2K disclosure for all their public clients uh, and advise shareholders or pri private clients. I don't know what you think, Scott, but this this is not just a one-time thing. This is an every year type thing with requirements to update. It seems like this is um, a huge amount of work that's going to be, I mean, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Well, I think one can it's, imagine, you know, a, a reporting requirement that would be fairly modest in many cases. I mean, disclosing, you know, who has substantial control in, in the case of most LLCs will be fairly straightforward. But one can also imagine a circumstance where you have a reporting company that uh, where the requirements would be quite burdensome and quite hard to figure out. And I think it's those outlying cases that are, you know, that are that are causing uh, the most consternation among. So Scott, what is, what is the fact, what is the fact pattern, Scott, that you, you and I have discussed offline and you're, and you're addressing right now, what is that fact pattern where you see this could get burdensome that you're concerned about it as a corporate lawyer? Well, if you have, uh, you know, multi-tiered, uh, entities. So if you've got a reporting company that's substantially controlled by another company, which is substantially controlled by a third company, you know, these things can get fairly remote. Um, so I think those are the kinds of, and, and when you have somebody, frankly, 
who is engaged in the kinds of activities that um, you know the Corporate Transparency Act is trying to address, um, you may well have uh, you know some fairly complex corporate organizations that that could be raise some difficult questions in complying with this act. So, Adam, I think that's a good lead in, unless you want to address that directly right now, it's a good lead into we've talked about who the parties are to the CTA filing, but what information does the CTA actually require? Because we're talking about whether something's burdensome or not burdensome. Um, You know, let's take a test case. We've got an LLC that's got a manager, um, a couple owners. What, what's required to be disclosed specifically by the CTA? Sure. So the first uh, inquiry is whether uh, the entity is a reporting company. And we'll, we'll assume for now that the LLC is a reporting company. In, in most instances, an LLC will be a reporting company. We, we can get into the details of a reporting company later. So if the LLC is a re- reporting company, uh, then the question is, what information does it have to disclose? As a very general matter, it has to disclose information regarding its beneficial owners and information regarding its company applicant if, mm. the, if the LLC doesn't exist until after the law goes into effect. And, and what information? So legal name, date of birth, address, so residential address for the beneficial owners, business address for the company applicant. And then some type of identifying number. There's a category of identifying numbers. Think uh, passport number or driver's license number. That type of basic information. So no P.O. box anymore? No P.O. box. Wow. So people are going to, individuals are going to have to give up private information about their residence. What is, Scott, I don't know what you think about this, but my sense is that um, that that one item of the, the residential address that certain clients are going to be resistant to that. What is what is the risk for privacy? You know, if we have a high net worth client, you know, centimillionaire, billionaire, uh, who's very concerned about their privacy, um, how do we advise a client about that? Well, I mean, it's already a problem with bank accounts. I mean, I don't know if you've tried it, but if you try to have a bank account at a PO box, it's it's next to impossible because of the uh, know your customer requirements. Um, so I don't think this is too far afield of that, but right. I, I agree with you. It does, it does, uh, it does raise problems for privacy and uh, you know, it's going to be um, much more difficult, I think, to, to not disclose your personal residence. I guess this is a question for both Adam and you, Scott. Um, this information that's, co- that's collated by FinCEN uh, it's not. I mean, it's not going to be normally available to the general public. Is that correct? That's that's correct. It's it is not allowed to be disclosed to the general public. Uh, it's it's supposed to be used in, in certain limited circumstances, primarily given to financial institutions and to and to law enforcement, as as well as the Department of of Treasury. Uh, and there are significant penalties for wrongfully using the information, for misusing or improperly disclose, disclosing the information, including uh, fines and, and imprisonment. So I know we've got a couple other things to cover here, but now that you've brought it up, uh, I think this is a good spot, if you agree, Scott, for us to discuss um, if someone fails to comply with the act, my understanding is the range goes from nothing to civil to criminal what, what is the scope of the penalty regime under the CTA 
And is that something we should be concerned about for our clients? Uh, we, we should. The penalties can be significant. The, the highest penalties, uh, including imprisonment and significant fines, apply where uh, the, the reporting company and the people who are ultimately responsible uh, at the reporting company, the people who are in control of the reporting company, uh, provide willfully false or fraudulent information, or they willfully fail to complete uh, a report or to provide updated information when something uh, materially changes. There, there are some safe harbors. So if you realize a mistake and, and, and you fix it, or if you, if you intentionally made a mistake and you fix it in, in a short period of time, uh, there are safe harbors that can limit your criminal expo- exposure. But the, the biggest penalties are for people who intentionally don't comply to the act. Right. Then there's the more likely scenario, though, where uh, people perhaps don't uh, intentionally provide false information or fail to provide information. But I can envision plenty of circumstances where owners of companies don't get along or where somebody goes off the grid and where their governing documents aren't updated to reflect this significant change in, in the regulatory regime. And so certain beneficial owners, they just fail to provide the information to the company. That, that That's going to lead to disputes. Uh, companies, LLCs may end up trying to remove certain members, certain owners of the LLC for failing to provide information. Now, right. whether or not they can do that is going to depend on uh, the, what the operating agreement says. But this, not only is this a significant regulatory change for, for companies, it's also a, a significant source of, of friction among owners. Wow, that's really crazy. So we've got this potential risk if we don't disclose correctly. Um, if a client asks what, what um, categories are excluded from compliance, is that something that we can tell from the act and, and what the exclu- are there exclusions? And if there are, what are the exclusions? There, there are many exclusions. There are many companies that are not reporting companies. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, think of a, a large corporation, a large public corporation. That that corporation is is likely going to uh, satisfy one or more uh, exclusions. The, the The primary categories, the the primary ways I think of exclusions are that there are exclusions for entities that already have uh, significant disclosure obligations to the government. So banks, investment firms insurance companies, those types of highly regulated entities won't have to uh, comply with the act. They won't be reporting companies because they already are providing this information to government agencies. What the about, other category, yeah, sorry, go, go, go ahead. No, no, keep going, Adam, keep going. The, the other category uh, I, I think of is this term large operating companies. So if, if you're a company that is of a certain size, 20 employees or more, Revenue of $5 million, according to uh, your, your federal tax return, and a physical presence in the U.S., then you're also not a reporting company. So there, there are many companies that are going to satisfy these exclusions. What about, what about trusts? Most trusts, an ordinary trust, for example, is not going to be a reporting company. The, the, way, the, the simple way of figuring out whether... Uh, an entity is a reporting company is think about how the entity is formed. You can form most trusts without registering the trust with a, a government agency. Right. So then it's not a reporting company. There are certain types of business trusts that may um, 
that may be reporting companies. But really, when we think reporting companies, it's it's corporations, LLCs, partnerships that that's going to sweep up most reporting companies. Got it. Got it. Um, Scott, did you have something you wanted to throw in here? I know you and I have discussed the CTA, you know, at length privately before the podcast. I'm curious if there's, you know, all the things we've covered, who's got to file, who doesn't have to file, what information we have to give, what the penalties are if we don't comply. Um, as a seasoned corporate partner and business person, um, what do you see as the, the benefits and the risks of the CTA for our clients? Well, again, I think in most cases, it's it's not going to be a particular burden. But uh, in some cases, it is. Uh, you know, you've got this definition of substantial control, um, you know, which, which basically says that if you have a, a substantial influence of important decisions of the reporting company, that that's also something that you have to disclose. Well, that right. becomes somewhat uh, difficult to make a determination as to whether that's occurring. I mean, it's you can pretty much figure out who's got 20% ownership, but now when you've got to determine, uh, you know, who has substantial influence over important decisions, you know, there there could very well be situations where that will be hard to figure out. Um, so I think the you, challenge is, is going to be in the details. Um, here's a question for Scott, for you and Adam. Um, because I'm not familiar with the answer to this question, but uh, is there any pending uh, litigation challenging the CTA? I have noticed uh, recently that there was one group that had filed a lawsuit challenging it. I, b- I believe it was a constitutional challenge. I- I'm not aware of the details. I- I- that's a, it's a, I believe, a facial challenge to try to strike the entire act. Mm-hmm. I suspect we'll see more litigation closer to when the act goes into effect. Uh, some as-applied challenges, some, some challenges just to particular types of requirements as opposed to trying to strike the entire act. Which, Adam, what's your opinion on the constitutionality of this? I'm assuming the, the, the background of this is it's a Commerce Clause-based um, uh, authority for Congress to pass this act, but I don't, I don't want to assume, but it, it seems to me that that's that's what it would be. Um, and then if that's true, how does this apply to state entities that have no intrastate um, commerce, owners, revenue? Would they would they potentially have a constitutional exception to this? Uh, I'm not aware of any exception for those types of entities. They, they possibly could bring a claim to see if a, if a court would buy their exception with respect to what makes this act constitutional. Uh, the Commerce Clause plus the Necessary and Proper Clause put that together, and that almost certainly makes this constitutional under current constitutional law, longstanding precedent. It, it really just builds on uh, other anti-money laundering act type uh, requirements. Now, don't get me wrong, this is significant. Some commentators have suggested this is the most significant federal leg- legislation for the business community in terms of burden in, in a long time years yeah. since the since the securities acts in the in the 1930s it could have that type of effect on the on the business community uh, but in, in terms of overall constitutionally i think we're on the the federal government's on pretty firm grounds who i mean who who at treasury is going to enforce this so fincen has uh, ultimate authority for setting up the database and, and and coordinating, requiring people to provide this information 
when, when it comes to enforcement, the, the Department of Justice presumably will have uh, some involvement and any uh, federal agency that has some type of law enforcement responsibilities, uh, anti-terrorism, for, for example, uh, will be looking for this information about certain beneficial owners and could get involved uh, in the process. But I, I'm, I'm assuming that it would, it would be the Department of Justice that right. would ultimately be enforcing, at least, at least from a criminal perspective, it would have to be that way. From a, from a civil perspective, uh, I, I haven't looked into those details, whether it's something the Treasury Department will take the lead on, the Department of Justice, or some other agency. So I'm I'm curious, you know, we're looking at this um, this upcoming requirements. What are the um, so for our listeners uh, who are clients? Um, I guess that's an, another two part question. One, what is the reporting deadline? We've mentioned it kind of in passing, but I think we should give it a little bit of airtime. And um, I think again, the, my last que- my last question is: is is this something that you foresee? big law firms, and even some small law firms doing the compliance work and then just getting the client's signature on the filings. Okay, so let's do the deadlines uh, first. If, uh, if a company already exists by December 31st of this year, 2023, and by that I mean company's been formed by filing whatever documents need to be filed with a, with a government agency to exist, then the company doesn't have a reporting obligation until January 1st, 2025. It'll have an extra year to comply. In contrast, if someone forms a new LLC in January of 2024 and the LLC uh, is a reporting company, then that company has 30 days to file the disclosure that, that needs to be filed. Got it. And, and sorry, what was your what was your follow-up? My last question? question was, what's your prediction? I mean, we're all partners at Aaron Fox Chef. We have we all have our own clients that are going to have to comply with this. How do you how do you see this shaking out in the in 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 this following sense? Who's going to be responsible for making the analysis of whether someone's a reporting company or not? And then if they and if they are, will law firms um, be doing the compliance work? Or will companies um, do it themselves to save costs? Because it seems like maybe on an individual company, the, the amount of cost is not that big. But incrementally, if you add it all up together, the millions of companies that have to comply, uh, even if it's a modest filing and it costs $1,000, we're talking about hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars of legal fees. In my view, most prudent companies that are reg- that already have lawyers who provide legal services in some way are, are going to have law firms involved in this process. Law firms are going to help evaluate whether they're a reporting company and who the beneficial owners are. And then right. law firms may also provide particular advice with respect to what exact information has to be disclosed. Now, law firms, some law firms may decide that they themselves no longer want to actually form new entities right. for their clients because they want to avoid uh, being one of Swept the people or entities who have to provide the information. They want to avoid being company applicants. At the same time, law firms could say it's not a big deal. We, we can we can write down our business address and, and be the still be the firm that, that files the, the documentation uh, registering a, a company uh, as an entity. 
Scott, did you have a thought on on where this is going to shake out from a business case in terms of who will be doing this work and who will not be doing the work? Well, again, I I don't think for most companies, uh, most reporting companies, most entities that, that we're forming, I don't think this is going to be a particular burden. It's going to be in the case of a reporting company, it's a corporation. You're going to disclose the owners and you're going to disclose the board members. And that's it. And I don't, I don't think that's that much of a burden. So I think in most cases, I, I think that it'll shake out that law firms will continue to do this, although that remains to be seen. But again, one can imagine a fairly difficult circumstance. You know, if you've got some, you know, huge partnership and you've got investors and, you know, you, you could imagine a situation where it might be a much more complex analysis. Um and I, I guess I would say that in those cases, I, I would imagine that law firms will continue to, to advise clients in, in, on this issue. I think what can make it particularly complex is where we have these currently existing entities with complicated structures, similar to what Scott mentioned earlier, layered structures, multiple entities that relate to each other, lots of different types of investors that have, that have varied rights. Uh, if the governing documents don't already require certain constituents, so say members of LLCs, to cooperate with the company in providing the information that the company has to provide to FinCEN, that's going to be a problem. That's going to lead right. to conflict. So what, what I what I would suggest uh, for for owners of of companies is, is that they get ahead of this and, and have their attorneys look at their governing documents. If if you're a manager of an LLC, for example you're going to want some language in your operating agreement that requires all members to provide all the information that a beneficial owner needs to provide. If you're, if you're really prudent, you're also going to ask your lawyer to look at it from a data privacy perspective and ensure that by, by requiring this information, uh, the, the company is complying with whatever data privacy regime may, may apply so that the company isn't getting the information but then violating another law and getting the information or using it improperly. And then for Got new it. entities, the governing documents right away should include those types of provisions. I think that's very helpful for our clients and for other lawyers in the firm that have a stable of clients that may have to comply with this. I think this is a good place for us to round up. We're, we're a little over 30 minutes, which is kind of our mandate. Uh, Scott, is there are there some closing thoughts that you have on this, or should we go to Adam to let him uh, close out? Well, my thought is it is a significant act, and it is a definitely a significant change in the regulatory regime for uh, for entities in this country. I mean, we have historically not required ownership information, and it's a dramatic departure from that. Um, so it's it's going to remain to be seen how uh, how controversial this turns out to be in the end. For sure, for sure. Adam, any closing, uh, conclusory statement? Yeah, just to follow up on, on what I what I just said about what companies can to, do now, it would be prudent for privately owned companies to to act sooner rather than later. In particular, it would be prudent to revise their governing documents before there's some type of dispute or even tension among, among the owners or among the managers, because it could become difficult to uh, amend documents if there's a if there's a disagreement going on. Whereas if there's no current disagreement, it, it seems much more likely that the the various people who need to agree to the amendment will agree to it. So uh, I I would suggest acting acting quickly. 
Excellent. Excellent. Well, I think this is a good um, spot for us to round up on. Adam, thank you for joining Scott and myself uh, at the Los Angeles Office's Corporate Corner podcast. Um, to our listeners, thank you for uh, listening and taking the time to uh, hear what Adam has to say about a very important new federal legislation. And we will see you in the next installment. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Bye.